just because you're having a bad time doesn't mean that's gonna be it. That's your determinant, that this is kind of the end game of what you're gonna be able to do. A lot of times, what you do after you come back from something is, or how you react to a bad training or maybe a bad race, how you react to that determines what comes next and whether you can perform well or not. Welcome to Chill Track Friday. This is Ali. I'm Anne. How so we're are a little you? bit off schedule today. In just to set the stage, it's like 7 p.m. when we are recording. So, needless to say, I there's no coffee on the table. <laughs> it's like a early morning start tomorrow. So, what what kind of coffee did you drink this morning? Oh, I'm I'm sticking with the Aldea blend. Ah, uh, yep. yeah, nice. From Think Coffee from our last episode. I think I'm going to be sticking with that for a while. Yeah, so good. In fact, I have I have this whole thing going on in my refrigerator, which is like one cup of leftover Aldea, one cup of leftover Aldea with oat milk in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rotating. I'm rotating. And then making fresh. And then you can make permutations out of that. Yep. Yeah, mix and match. I was in Switzerland and I brought back some coffee, so eventually we'll have something new. Yes. I brought back like three different blends and we've been gifted a coffee from italy so we have lots of exciting coffee coming up but today we're drinking something very special (laughs) very fine imported hard to find la croix la croix what flavor is this this is peach pear it's quite lovely i don't know about very hard to find but (laughs) you may find it at any store (laughs) <laughs> any convenience store you can see them stacked to the ceiling through the window yeah it actually fits because from what i hear our guest today does not drink coffee he like he has no idea it's his secret weapon it's a secret weapon so speaking of that who's this today we have a good friend and distinguished colleague <laughs> mitchell thornton who is this guy I've heard his name before. Yeah, he's well. He he's fast. He's <laughs> hard to pin down because he's always running ahead. <laughs> you have to be running in the other direction. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, Mitchell is seriously an incredible runner and person, and also academic. We're going to get into the many different sides of Mitchell. Um, Mitchell's currently the assistant coach for I- Iona College men's and women's cross country track and field teams. At Iona, he's coached nine All-Americans, including two sub-four-milers, and his men's team has placed in the top 12 three times at the Division I NCAA Cross-Country Championships, which is really incredible. Before Mitchell moved to New York, he was the high school cross-country track and field coach for three years. He led his 2014 girls track team to the first state championship title in the program history and also of any sports team in his school's history. That is quite a beginning of your coaching career. Um, His team placed first in cross country and he had the individual boys state cross country champion in 2013 and the individual boys state outdoor track 3200 meter champion in 2014 on his team. So uh, he's coached some incredible athletes and is an incredible athlete himself. So let's welcome Mitchell to the podcast. Welcome, Mitchell. Welcome, hey, Mitchell. How's it going? 
Good. Nice nice to see you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I met you through New York Roadrunners group training, and um, I just found myself always gravitating to your coaching advice and also your wonderful personality and you're really funny <laughs> so, um, I always I was always gravitated towards his jokes I yeah like, I don't know about the coaching part but yeah <laughs> definitely, that was good too <laughs> definitely I mean you have from the first time I asked you a coaching question I just saw this sort of switch into depth of experience and understanding and knowledge you really understand the sport and so I we want to get to know you a little bit more and just talk to you a little bit about your experience with your own running and your coaching and also, you're a real intellectual and have lots of um, wonderful English degrees under your belt. And uh, you and I spoke about a program that you're also currently recently enrolled in. So What a nerd. I know. I love nerds. It fits right in. I Did you watch the Boston Marathon, by the way? Of course. <laughs> duh. <laughs> duh. 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 Sorry, duh. Oh, my God. What did you... So can you break down the finish for me, the men's finish? How did, how did that look? That's why you always run through the line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't give up beforehand. I mean, he was tying up definitely. I mean, you could see the strain on his face. The other guy definitely looked a lot smoother in his mechanics, but I don't know. I mean, if I'm finishing the first, trying to win the Boston Marathon, I'm killing myself. I'm not going to ease up a couple, like, what, five meters before the finish line? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was strictly just he could not make his body do It could what, be. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it did look like that. I think his muscles were really fighting against him, yeah. but... He made that move really early at the turn. Like, yeah. I know that's his place where he does that, but in that kind of a race with that much more to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot longer intense. than it looks. That right on Hereford, you have a little bit of a climb, and then you make the left on Boylston, which to me, because I used to live in Boston, I think is a slight downhill, but you still have more than a quarter of a mile to go, so it's yeah. still a pretty good distance. Yeah, it's close to 600 meters, I think, yeah. right? Something like that. Yeah. And, and you can clearly see he made the move when you make the right mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the left I guess he just wanted to be ahead on left I remember in 2013 he Lilisa did the same thing correct but at that time he was able to outkick I think it was Gabriel Marriott with him but like did not work this time and I had a feeling like because I'd seen Chirono race Amsterdam and he they you know at the end he mm-hmm. had a serious kick so it was gonna be interesting when this these two were together yeah, and but it, was it was perfect for him to be able to kind of just sit back and let Desisa do the work for that yeah. stretch. But what an incredible day in marathoning. Yeah. And then the women, oh my gosh. <laughs> Kipling got making up that much time. Yeah. Incredible. So what? It, speaking of from a coaching perspective, it was interesting to watch Defega go so early. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that? Were you like just watching it? Like It was like 40 minutes into the race, and she was like, I... It's too slow for me. I'm out. And she just took off. And then I think by the time she was at mile 20, there were three minutes between her and the and the, and the the second pack. Yeah, it's always risky business when people do that because, I mean, sometimes you can be sitting there and it's like the pace is slow. You don't want to be a whole bunch of women later in the race, whole big group. But it's also you have no idea how you're going to feel. I mean, mile four is still, of course, relatively early. A lot of the first 15 or so miles are pretty much a net downhill. And then after you enter Newton, right around mile 15 or so, I think pretty much until you crest Heartbreak Hill, it's a net uphill. And you have some nasty hills in there. But sometimes it works. I know in the 2008 Women's Marathon, Constantina Dita of Romania, she went very early on, a few miles in. And at one point, I think her lead grew to almost two minutes. 
and when interviewed the chase pack afterward they actually said at one point they forgot she was out there so they thought they were racing for the title and then at one point too late they realized that she was still out there and she was a strong runner i mean they went through i think i could be guessing a little bit but i think they went through the first half and like 71 minutes or so and she's used she can go through a half marathon like 68 yeah she was a pretty she's a pretty talented runner so That's she went early but it ended up paying off for her as a coach when you're watching something like that unfold at the pro level mm-hmm. what is going through your mind usually or is it always like well let's see <laughs> yeah a lot of it is i think you know sometimes we go into things and for me and my athletes i don't love giving game plans too much i think having kind of a basic outline is good because we all know when the gun goes off racing is pretty much reacting you know you can have the perfect game plan it's like i want to go out at this pace but maybe it goes out too slowly or it goes out way too fast and it's like what do you do do you sit back because you don't want to go out too hard do you go early because you don't want to sit back you don't want it to leave it too much with too many people later on so you kind of have to make those plans and I often wonder when I see those happen, like, what exactly was the plan? Like, is she just making this decision snap right there? Or was it something like, well, if you go out and you feel the pace is too slow, just start pressing and see who goes with you. And if no one does, then just keep hitting. Yeah. I've always admired watching Mary Katani race, and I thought this was a similar approach. Yes. Um, She had run 217 at Dubai not too long ago. Right. So I can imagine the first three miles she... I, I have no idea just like you're saying I wonder what the plan was but it could be she was like this is way too slow like I don't know even though she she's her debut on on the Boston course mm-hmm. just to take off was quite a brave decision not knowing what the course was like yeah, exactly and the commentators I don't know how true this is they said she refused to kind of she didn't even sit through a course strategy she refused to do that that, um, I'm not sure. I didn't hear that. But. Yeah, I heard on, on the commentating stream I was watching on NBC Gold, they said, yeah, she has, she did not sit through. And I, I don't you know I don't know where they're getting that from, obviously, but I was like, ooh. That, so it made it even more interesting. I don't know if they were just trying to create drama on television to say, <laughs> okay, just wait for the Newton Hills. This can't last for that, that long, but it obviously did. Yeah, I can't imagine her not studying at least on her own in some way mm-hmm. to know someone who hadn't raced it. I would want to know. It was pretty hot and humid, though. I hear the weather was yeah, very, very, very different from last year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think Boston's the only race I know where it can go from snowing and freezing to my year when I the second time I ran it in twenty twelve. It when I entered, it was seventy eight degrees at the start, and when I got into Newton, it was about ninety three degrees. Oh my, oh my god. god, that's horrible. It was not a fun day. How did you feel? Awful. It felt terrible. I felt so drained. I remember getting through mile 18 and there was like nothing inside of me that wanted to run eight more miles. Mm-hmm. I was so over that race. So can we talk about that? Like when you got to the start line, you already, you're like looking at the conditions. You have trained for this race and you get to the morning off and you're like, well, this is obviously not going to go to what I, the numbers I have in my mind. So what do you, what's your approach in a situation like that? I try not to focus too much on the superfluous details. I think a lot of times we let things get to us. Heat, humidity, it's cold, it's windy, it's this, it's that. But at the end of the day, you can only control the things you've worked on. And what those things are is your training, you know the work you've put in, you know what your body's capable of. I mean, there's not a whole lot of... Sometimes you have those days where everything just kind of aligns and you can really take off and surprise yourself. But training is a really, really great indicator of what you can run. If you can't run six minute pace in your training runs for 
18 miles, you're not suddenly going to magically appear and do it on race day at a marathon. So I try to just focus on those things. I mean, obviously that day when I saw that it was going to be, it was 78 degrees, pretty humid at the start. It was not the most ideal thing. I'm not the greatest distance runner in humidity and stuff. But again, I just try to focus on staying calm, keeping my mind frame in check. Those are the things you can control. You can control your performance. I mean, I often say to people, we ask for sometimes um, advice at group training. And one of my things is keep yourself in check. If you can have the greatest fitness space underneath you, but if you get on the starting line and you've already talked yourself out of it, you may as well not even be there because you're just going to get out there and it's just going to get worse and worse from there if you're already saying, oh, this sucks, this is hot, this is this, this is that. Why are you even starting? So when you were at that point in mile 18 and you couldn't fathom going further, how did you get through that last quarter or two thirds? Uh, yeah, basically I just, you know, I just kept getting the little checkpoints like, all right, let's, because mile 18, you're through a few Newton Hills. Um, you're still approaching heartbreak, which is not, I don't think is the toughest hill. It's not obviously in the best spot. It's about 20 and a half miles in. And then you still have another hill after that, after you crest up at Boston College. But yeah, I was just kind of setting little checkpoints for myself. It's like, all right, let's just make it a few more minutes or let's get to mile 19. Let's get over Heartbreak Hill. After Heartbreak Hill, you actually have a really, really long downhill afterward, which can kind of get some spring back in your leg. So I got through that. Get along, get to, um, I think, Cleveland Circle, something like that, before when you turn off Com Ave and then you start heading toward uh, Kenmore Square get to the sitgo sign which of course is a mile left get under the mass ave bridge and then make the famous right and left onto hereford and then boylston wow what was your time that year i don't want to say okay. it was not that great <laughs> <laughs> how far off your like your goal were you uh the year before because i i've run only four marathons i was really young when i did them so i set my pr when i was 19 it was 247.55 and yeah. I'd actually said it the year before at Boston because that right. was a really perfect year. I think it was only in like the 50s. It was the quote unquote infamous tailwind year where mm. apparently oh, yeah. that propelled everyone to like shave 20 minutes off their best time or something. <laughs> yeah. um, but you obviously, when you go up to a start line in a race where the conditions are like that, you mm. already knew that you were going to adjust your pace though, right? So you knew. Yeah, you had to have, had to have a little bit different of a game plan. Yeah, yeah, yep. And then there's effort because, I don't know, I mean, when you train in certain conditions and then the race day ends up being completely different and extreme going from training in the winter and then running a 78 to 90 degree marathon, mm-hmm. it's, you almost don't know how your body's going to react. So you, even though you might have these, okay, I'm going to adjust by however many seconds, you still might feel terrible. Yeah. You definitely have to go a lot, a lot by feel. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, I was speaking of the, this year's Boston Marathon, I know that's where this conversation started. There's one other stat. I mean, you you might be aware of this already, but did you know John Bernard Samuelson ran 304 at I 61? Did. Yes. That was like 97% age grade. Right. It was, yeah. oh, what was it? Within 20 or 30 minutes of her uh, time when she first minutes, ran it? Yeah. In 1979, yeah. She's Incredible. she's unreal. She's <laughs> disgusting <laughs> she's still running that fast that old right i was like i saw the 97 percent. i'm like wow that's incredible and then i looked at the age graded adjustment of the time and that's at 219.34 i was like oh incredible and coach stewart was like oh so she's getting faster because she's run 221 before she has 
Okay. Let's take him back. Yeah. Let's start from the beginning. Um, how did you get into running? Uh, my older brother did it. He's four years older than I am. So when he got into seventh grade, he signed up for cross country and then track. And so I was in third grade, went to all the meets, saw everything. And so when seventh grade rolled around and signups came, I just signed up. What, wow. That's kind of incredible. What What's your earliest kind of significant memory, if any, of that? Like uh, something so, you saw that was really... So the first race I ever did outside of gym class was a 400 meter. It would have been the summer after my third grade year, so right before fourth grade. And my brother wanted to run a 5K. It was a twilight 5K, about 15 minutes from where we lived. And they had a, a kid's race beforehand. It was 400 meters on the track. And my mom was like, well, why don't you do it? And I was playing Pokemon on my Game Boy Color at that point, <laughs> not having any interest in running. And she's like, well, why don't you do it? So I said, okay. So he signed me up. And then, like, I had no idea what to do at that point. I'm a kid. And she's like, well, why don't you, like, stretch or something? So I'm like, all right, cool. going to do that. And then uh, I was, I've always been super competitive, like, in everything. And so they lined us up on the track. They fired the gun. Uh, some kids got ahead of me. I got really pissed off at that. <laughs> And so I took off, and I led wire to wire, and I ended up winning. Wow. The first race. <laughs> That's so cool. And then you went back to Pokemon. <laughs> yes. I was not interested in anything. My brother's finish, anything that was going on. I just wanted to play my game. That's so funny. You, you have to show us pictures. Do you have pictures from that race? My mom, they took a picture afterward of me and put it in the paper. I'm sure she has it somewhere. Okay. Uh, does your brother still run? Not very much anymore, no. He, a few years ago, um, when I was still in Ohio, he came up to see my men's team compete, or my men's and women's team compete at our regional cross-country meet, and then he, we both did a 10K the following day, and he really kind of screwed up his foot during it, because he, mm. he didn't run a ton, and then his Achilles and stuff has just not been the same for a few years, so... He might, I think he gets out every now and again, does a few miles, maybe a few times a week, but not much anymore. So you're the one that it's stuck with. So seventh grade rolls around and you sign up for the team. Mm -hmm. Then what? How, was it a big team? How did, how did that go the first day of try? Did you have to try out? No, we did not. No, we were a small school. My graduating class had 75 people, so our team was oh. pretty tiny. Uh, Co-ed? Co-ed, yeah. Uh, did not like running that much when I was young. I remember in seventh grade, I did pretty much everything I could to get out of practice. <laughs> At the end of the year, we actually, there, we probably had two or three meets and they were optional. And <laughs> I just did not go to practice. And my mom was like, well, if you want to do these meets, you like should probably go run. So I would like run to the end of our street, which was, now I know, is like point three miles and then I would run home and I claimed like I had to go to the bathroom or something and then I just would not run anymore. That's so funny. Wait, I, I have to ask because we uh, skipped ahead. Do you remember what you what you did that 400 in? No clue. Okay. I'm sure they probably have it in the paper. Yeah. I can ask my mom okay. but I do not know. Because, you know, Coach Stewart is always saying you should, 400 is your distance. It was. <laughs> probably was. That's why the I was original a, distance. I was a big D guy in high school. The distance you run when you're playing Pokemon, that's the distance. You, that's your. You must stick with. You must stick with for the rest <laughs> of your life. I really that's... screwed up in college and stuff. <laughs> so did you uh, rise to the top pretty quickly? or were you? Uh, not, in your... not in seventh grade. No, in eighth grade, I was our number one guy all the time. And then when I got into high school... I just assumed everyone was going to be better than I was. And at the end of the year, only the top seven gets to compete at districts, regionals, and then if you make it to state. 
And I ended up being in our top seven that year, and I actually became the first person in my high school's history to go to the state cross-country meet all four years. Wow, that's, that's so, incredible. Yeah. Why, why did you assume everyone was going to be I just thought, than you? Just, I just thought because they were older, mm-hmm. I kind of was in that mind frame, and I just remember being like in junior high and racing my times and seeing the older kids ahead of me, like the seniors, juniors, mm-hmm. and just thinking that like, well, they're all going to be better than I am, so maybe I'll be lucky to make it to mm-hmm. state like my senior year. Okay, so then um, when you were considering college and things, was mm-hmm. was running in the mix with that, or were you purely going to focus on academics? I don't think running was at the top of my list because, I don't know, I guess knowing my times and stuff that I ran in high school and stuff, I didn't think it was really like, I'm not going to be the top person in like college. Like I didn't think it was really like a viable thing where like, oh, I'm going to go have a career in this and stuff like that, so... I definitely wanted to keep running. I really like the team atmosphere and stuff, and I definitely wanted to keep at it, but it wasn't super big in what school I decided. That's very mature. What can I say? Come on. <laughs> Comes naturally to him. Uh, I wasn't always this perfect. <laughs> <laughs> can we talk about Mitchell's PRs for a second? Yeah, we have a long list of them right here. Yeah. Um, do you want to read them? No, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Scary number. Name so. that number. Do you want to guess? <laughs> Actually, we can play that. Yes, go ahead. So we could ask Mitchell. <laughs> no kidding. Okay, one mile PR. Bali. Uh, I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, four oh four. Close. Four oh eight. You're making him look bad. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. Okay, I'll go on the other side of the spectrum. I'm kidding. Answer. I'm totally teasing. Um, that's in wait four. I mean four. Wait, let's just let that settle in. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I can't even imagine. Like the scenery must be going by so quickly. Okay. Five uh, k. I think I know this one, and watch me get it wrong. I think it's fourteen oh eight. Fourteen eighteen. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Fourteen oh, eighteen. Okay. Nice. Okay. How about ten mile? Achieved at Bronx in 2018. This is a recent PR. It's badass. Um, 51 change? 53.26, which is 5.21 pace. Actually, that makes much more sense. Yes, sorry. Thanks. Thanks for the overestimation. (laughs) I remember when we saw you at the end of the Bronx and we were walking out of the Bronx basically and I was talking to you about your PR and I remember thinking like 521 I could do one mile for that <laughs> you're like I got this for the first mile <laughs> you got the rest right <laughs> can I give you the baton for nine more miles after this <laughs> I'll take care of it and um, the half marathon PR you can guess your own too you know I, I, I know that you know. <laughs> okay want me to say yeah can you say 111 23 I was going to say 112 this time. And your marathon PR, which you told us earlier, 247.55 in New York City. In Boston. In Boston. Oh, right. Of course, Boston. Sorry. Uh, so going back to that four-miler, 2040, mm-hmm. which is 511 pace in Central Park. Mm-hmm. Wow. When, when, was the, when was your marathon PR? 2011. 2011. So mm-hmm. you haven't even. Yeah. So, okay. What's your favorite distance to run now? Half marathon. Yeah. I'd say between, because the 5K nowadays is feeling more and more like an all-out sprint. So I'd say 
Anything like five mile and plus to about the half marathon, yeah? Okay, yeah, the, the 5Ks. We've had some laughs talking about the 5K, and well, particularly yeah. the dash to the finish. Yes, <laughs> I mean, well, a 5K is basically dying, getting through 3K, and then having two more K to go. That's where it'll explain. Can you elaborate a little bit more? On that? Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it's pretty much all go and no slow. I mean, you don't really have, especially in nowadays, if you race on the track or you really want to be in a competitive 5K, you don't have much settle-in time anymore. You really have to be on it if you have a bad lap or a bad couple laps or you get too gap from the pack you want to be in. It's, it becomes so much harder to pick, kind of get around things and to pick it up and get back to where you were. I mean, if you want to be running, I don't know, like 440 pace, so you're hitting 70s, all of a sudden you start hitting a few. If you hit a 72 or a 73, it's like, all right, now I have to run a 68 or a 67 in a later lap to start making up that time. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That's yeah. just so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember the 5K you ran for your PR? I do. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, it was up in Boston. It was a Twilight 5K, and I haven't had the best season throughout that year, uh, the spring season, and I was starting to kind of come on in things. Miles were starting to rack up. Rack up. I was having some really great workouts. Um, I knew I was going to have a probably a pretty good pay race because I think that's for, oh God, I can't even, maybe 4.43 pace, maybe faster than that, I don't know. And I did a workout the week before, I did 10 times 400 at goal race pace off one minute jog, and it felt super easy. I remember just feeling very in control the entire time, getting really recovered during that minute, and I knew after that I was really in good 5k shape. How many days before the race was that workout? That would have been about maybe five or six. Okay. That's pretty cool. Is it a, Was it a flat course? It was on the track. So oh, it was on the track. It was very okay. flat, actually. <laughs> a lot of turns, though. Yeah, a lot of turns. Um, okay, so tell us a little bit about your college running. Ooh, so it started off kind of rough, actually. I remember getting into college. Um, Again, running wasn't at the highest part of my level at that point. It wasn't really big on my, on my to-do list of why I chose the college I did. I mean, I went to the college I did because I got a full academic ride, so graduating without any debt seemed like a pretty great idea at that point in my life. So um, I didn't see eye-to-eye -eye with the coach a whole ton. I still don't. He still coaches at the school I do, and I just I don't agree with his method of coaching or his method of training and stuff like that. We butt, we butted heads a lot, and I remember when I moved into my dorm and then I started training a lot with them. My PRs kind of stagnated, like I didn't I wasn't really getting much better. I wasn't having as much fun with it, so a lot of times I was really questioning whether I wanted to continue running or what exactly I wanted to do. It was like I'm in college. Maybe I should be enjoying this. There are probably a lot of better things I could be doing with my time than going out for long runs every single week, going for workouts after class and stuff like that. Uh, ended up deciding to stay with it. Oddly enough, I had I did a study abroad my winter um, break of my freshman year. I went to Japan and China for about a month, and during that time, I pretty much I don't I think I ran one time, and it was the last day we were there at the hotel because all the hotels we went to. None of them had treadmills or anything, and my professor wasn't going to let me just go out and run around the streets of China where I have no idea where I am. <laughs> so I remember during that month, that was like kind of my time where I was, I took that trip as a study abroad, but also just to decide, did I still want to keep doing this? Was this something I actually 
wanted to stick with and continue when I got back to school. And I ended up staying with it. So yeah, And then started changing distances a lot. Like I said, I was a mid-D guy more in high school. I ran the 400, 800, 1600, sometimes the 3200 if they needed me to at a meet, but stuck more to the shorter distances. Then I started moving up, started doing like the 3K and indoor, started doing the 5K, 10K and indoor, and then adding the 10K outdoor. And then just kept going from there. And I just, I think I started finding my love of it again, because the team was there. I was starting to gravitate a little bit more toward it. I was kind of finding my niche there in my training and stuff. So I think that trip really helped. It made me really realize that I did want to keep going on with this. It's important to have that moment. Yeah, I've had a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said you didn't see eye to eye with the with the coach there. Mm-hmm. What can you talk about some of the differences in that philosophy and? Uh, well, one I just always feel like after a while he's the one who started the program. He actually was a pretty good runner back in the day, and I just never sensed a ton of enthusiasm from him. He wasn't mm-hmm. the most engaged of coaches. I mean, you could email him seven hundred times and maybe get a response once. He wasn't always the best at getting back to athletes, focusing on them and. I don't know, I think just a lot of it was sometimes just pulling workouts out of, out of a hat and saying, all right, we're doing this, or, well, we always do this workout at this time of year, so we're going to do it again, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, every year you have a different team, you have different dynamics, every person is different. You can't just say, well, last year we did this hilly fartlek the third week of practice, so this year we're going to do the hilly fartlek the third week of practice. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, why are we doing it? Right, so there's like a lack of adaptability and mm-hmm. sort of, okay. Yeah. Yeah, engagement. And then it's hard to, as a runner to be engaged if the coach is not Right, because after a while, I mean, especially if the coach, if you're doing the same thing pretty much year in and year out, it's like you don't really need the coach to be there. It's like, all right, this week we're doing this workout, mm-hmm. and then we're going to do this long run, and then next week we're going to do these things, and then we're going to do this. So it's like, why is the coach even there? What prompted your move to New York? So as I was getting near the end of my second graduate school, uh, I really decided... I really had to decide what it is I actually wanted to do with my life. Did I want to go on and get a doctorate? Did I want to work? What was it? And I coached high school for three years while I was in graduate school. I had a lot of success doing that. And then um, I remember watching, it would have been the 2014 Division I College Cross Country Championships. And I remember being just really, really inspired by watching it. And I thought it would be so cool if I could make running be coaching an actual lifestyle and maybe a career and my cousin is the head women's coach down at NC State and so I reached out to her talked to her about things and she gave me advice about how to go about it and so I started applying to schools sending in applications and things wasn't really expecting a lot I got a ton of rejections a lot of no's a lot of no responses but then I ended up getting accepted at several schools and I always wanted to move to New York. I visited here probably 20 sometimes before I ended up moving here, and I always just loved it. And so Iona was actually the last school that gave me a position. I was set to go, I was between, well, I was pretty much set on Brown University. I thought that would be a good fit academically, athletically. And then I got a call from Iona and I got hired very fast. Not very fast, I mean, the process was a while, but he kind of called, offered me the position, and then I figured, well, this is my time to see whether I can live in New York. Mm. So, moved out here. Wow, lucky us. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh, so fortunate. Seriously. 
What's like the biggest difference that you see in coaching college students compared to high school students? I mean, there's an obvious answer to that, but also like obviously there's a maturity level and commitment mm-hmm. and things, but is it how how is that how did you make that adjustment like that shift into like an older kind of more mature mindset? Um actually the similar there are a lot of more similarities I think <laughs> than differences. Sometimes mm-hmm. I always just say coaching college is just coaching older high schoolers. <laughs> Because st- they still have their immaturities. They still yeah. have their mistakes and everything. And um, basically just knowing that at the Division One level especially, it's pretty much becomes your, it becomes kind of a full-time job. It's like at our school, not to tout us too much, but we are one of the top mid-D&D distance schools in the country. And it's like when you're coming to our school, we're not bringing you here so you can go have weekend trips every time in the city and to just screw around and stuff. I mean, you expect athletes to mess up. When freshmen come in a lot, we recruit internationally a ton. And so you get athletes who are coming in who are very young. This is probably their first time really away from home. Parents aren't around. They're right by, biggest city in the country. And so you expect them to screw up sometimes. You know they're gonna go out and party. You know they're gonna go out and drink and stuff. And it's like, you have to take those things in stride. But just, I guess the main difference between that, like high school, I mean, kids are going out. You can have phenomenal high schoolers, but it's not their job. It's the sport they decided to do, and when you come, especially if you're on a scholarship for the Division One level, it's like you're here to perform, and just matching again with what is the maturity level, because you can have two freshmen coming in who are of similar abilities, but one could be running 30 miles a week, and another one could be running 70 miles a week in high school, and it's like, okay, well, what do we do with this? Mm-hmm. How do we take a kid who's running 30 miles a week and get them up to running the appropriate level safely. How do we take a kid who maybe was a little overworked in high school and kind of bring them down a little bit but still have them perform at the level and get them to understand that more isn't always better. You come in sometimes and it's like, well, when I ran in high school, I was we had a kid come in two years ago from New Jersey and it was from Colts Neck and they're pretty notorious for doing a lot of high mileage training. When he came in, he was doing sometimes 16, 17 mile long runs in high school 80 plus mile weeks and we really had to dial back a lot of his intensity and get him to understand that yeah this is what we have to do I mean we can't have you running 100 miles a week when you're 19 years old was that hard for him to absorb that it was he was very much in the mind frame of more was always better it's like Mm -hmm. why would I do a seven mile run when I can do a 10 mile run why should I go out for a 14 mile long run when I can do an 18 mile long run with the top guys why should I settle for doing a five to six mile tempo at this pace when the top guys are running in eight mile tempo at a significantly faster pace. So, uh, actually, can you can you answer the why? Yeah. We have to get them to understand that you're going to be in college with us for four, possibly five years if we do a red shirt, and that you're not going to be running extremely well sometimes right out of the gate. You have to have that long-term goal and that long-term progression. And a lot of times when people come in, they want, you know, they're sometimes there, the top guys coming in from their area, from their state, from their province, wherever it is. Sometimes we've had people who are the top in their country come to us and getting them to understand that, yeah, you may have been the top guy there, but now you have the top guys from all over the world in the NCAA, and you're not just going to be the best right out of the gate and getting them to accept that and being like, we always want instant gratification where it's, well, I want to be great right now. I want to run these times right now. And it's like, okay, well, college is an adjustment. You're away from home. You're eating at a dining hall or learning to cook by yourself. If you're living off campus, you're learning to take care of yourself. There's a uh, Mark Wetmore, who's the head coach out at University of Colorado, probably 
in my mind, the best NCA, one of the best distance running coaches in the world, definitely at the NCAA level. He always tells his athletes generally that give me two years, then you'll start figuring it out. And sometimes that's really hard for kids to take. They want to be great right out of the get-go, and they don't think, oh, well, if I'm doing this now, am I going to be overdoing it? So in two or three years from now, I'm going to be in worse shape than I am now. It's like, yeah, you have to look ahead. So is that almost as if you're trying to peak them their last year of high school? A lot I mean, of college, time. sorry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the NCAA level is weird in that we have three seasons. and if they, So we have cross-country, indoor, and then outdoor track. And you pretty much have to try to get them to peak three times per year, which is a very, very difficult thing to get them to do. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not so much peaking at those levels. It's just getting them to build up safely. So when they get to their later years, they're really kind of in their, not prime fitness, because they have plenty of time after that, but really getting them there safely. And so they're more experienced and that they can run their best. You're thinking longevity. You're thinking longevity, Always. Absolutely. And do you incorporate that mode of coaching in the group training that you do with adults as well? I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously the long game is a little bit different because we're older, but do you tend to take the same approach? Um, Yeah, like you said, it is a little bit different because people come from with all the different levels of experience. You can have people in group one, but who started running two years ago. And it's like, all right, you have to look at training age a lot. So it's like you can be in your 40s, but you started running three years ago. So it's like your training age is three. So you're still very much like kind of in your infancy there of training. It's like, okay, yeah, you're older and you could probably take more, but you still have to look at it that in that light. That's cool. That's pretty cool. So when you say that, like, your training age is still infancy, you're just saying, it, does that mean just the feeling that comes with experience? Like, if like the longer you've done it, you're just more familiar with more the familiar. intricacies of everything that's Yeah, involved. you're more familiar. You definitely have more miles under your belt. Also, just having the consistency in training year in and year out. You know, you, you can't always have, like, well, during this training cycle, I did... 70 miles a week and then I took time off and when I came back you know things were this and this so then I got in like 30 miles a week and then I got back to really great training but then this happened it's like you always have to have that continuous progression where you're really adding up all those miles all of that training so that your body really starts becoming prepared for what it's going to do later yeah a lot of people like to rush I mean I think especially in today where I mean you can type anything into Google and get it instantly so we want things very very quickly and it's like it's not going to happen with running. Yeah. So this sort of leads me into the question. You've just, you and you were sharing with me recently that you've uh, registered to study sports psychology and that you're pursuing that degree, which, yes. I, congratulations, I think that's a wonderful Thank you. subject to pursue. And has your experience coaching led you into being interested in that because of the things and that you deal with as a coach? I mean, maybe it's an obvious question, but I'd love to hear the progression of the decision to study. Yeah, so, yeah, I got that idea a couple months ago to kind of go back to school to start exploring different things, and I had a range of topics I wanted to explore, and when I got to sports psychology, I think it really just made sense because I do a lot of that now, not so much license, but with my own athletes and stuff, just, I mean, running is definitely a mental game. You can be in, again, like I kind of said earlier, you can be in the best physical frame, best physical Um, training you've done you could have everything go really well you've had all the workouts and everything but if your mind is not there you can talk yourself pretty much out of anything you really have to be able to harden your mind and kind of get it to know that yeah we're going to be out here grinding for a while yeah this race is going to hurt 
my high school coaches were always really great with preparing us for races by telling us if you're doing it right you're going to be hurting but you can't be afraid of that you can't be out there just fearing that oh my god my body's starting to hurt I have to slow down or oh here comes this here comes that you have to be able to just kind of shut that kind of stuff down and know that yeah this is hard but it's going to be worth it and just kind of finding because we all go through slumps we all get we get injured we have different things going on and so it's really easy to kind of talk yourself out of oh well at this time last year I was running this and this year I'm struggling to run this because it's happened with me it's happened with athletes where people come in and they say well last year I could do an eight mile tempo run at 530 pace and now this year I'm struggling at 540 pace for six miles and it's like okay well you're coming back from an injury you got hurt over the summer and you had to take x number of weeks off and so now we're building you back in slowly of course your fitness isn't going to be exactly what it was at this time last year or two months ago or three months ago or whatever and kind of getting them to realize that just because you're having a bad time doesn't mean that's going to be it. That's your determinant, that this is kind of the end game of what you're going to be able to do. A lot of times, what you do after you come back from something is, or how you react to a bad training or maybe a bad race, how you react to that determines what comes next and whether you can perform well or not. Have you seen any real breakthroughs in any of the athletes you've worked with in terms of mental, like a shift in the mentality, and then the performance comes after that? Mm-hmm. Actually, the guy I was talking about earlier, the Colts neck guy, he, um, he's one of those kind of runners who, when things are going very, very well, he's very, very big and very loud and <laughs> very into running, and then when things aren't going so well, he's very, he's easy to get down on himself. And he had a good cross-country season, near the end of the season regionals and then our national meet he didn't have the best of races so we kind of sat him down really talked about what went on this season like when you were feeling great what kind of mindset were you in what was happening in your life what what workouts were you getting out of it and he went home for winter break he had probably one of the best winter breaks of training he had and he came back this indoor season and he bettered his PR down to 1403 for the 5k can't remember exactly what it was coming into it but it was significant it was probably 14 in the high 1420s low 1430s so he was really able just to perform a lot better because his mind frame was finally starting to grasp the oh hey every single run doesn't need to be all out I can go for an easy six to eight mile run where kind of just getting the heart rate up getting out stretching the legs a little bit and be fine it doesn't need to be me coming in where I'm about to drop down at the end of a run and feel like I can't go anymore and to trust the training that's what you really have to do you have to look at things and say okay this is this is going to build me to where I need to get we don't just kind of throw darts at the board and say all right well this is the workout we're going to do today it's like what have you been doing where do we want to get you what are you going to focus on this season what events what do we think time-wise you can run and then we really try to move toward getting you to get there it's like being a detective in many ways, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you start a new season and you have a new class of freshmen come in, mm-hmm. there must be a lot. I mean, you obviously you get their file and you know what they've run and this and that. But have you had experiences where you think you see them and then you're like, oh, no, that's absolutely wrong. Like, you really should be doing this. And then you switch them into a different distance and then they blossom in a whole other way. Have, has that happened with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we've had a lot of people come in who they think they're milers because they did... The 1600 in high school sometimes 
or they were like really great at the 800 so then that went into the mile and then you know we have the 1500 and stuff in college we have the mile and indoor and so they really think they settle at that distance and it's like they start racing out there and it's like okay yeah your times were great in high school and now you're getting into this level and you can sometimes look and be like well they weren't they're not the top even for freshmen let's say and so sometimes you kind of are just like well why don't you give this a shot why don't you try the 3k why don't you try a 5k outdoors and see how it goes and yeah so we usually end our episodes by asking our guests if they had one training tip for our listeners Mm -hmm. what would it be educate yourself both in terms of training and about yourself always know why is it we do what we do why do we do workouts how do we structure a season what more can i learn about this sport so when i go out there it's not just blindly running every single day but then also educating yourself about yourself because like i said we go through slumps we go through down times and sometimes you really have to look back and say why did i get into running in the first place why do i keep doing this and sometimes you really have to remind yourself and you say oh yeah, I actually do just enjoy doing this activity. But also seeing what works for you, because what works for me isn't going to work for someone else. The amount of mileage I do might not necessarily correlate with somebody else. Or the type of workouts that some people really, really respond to might just beat the crap out of me so that I come back much more beat up than someone else might. So really learning and looking back at your history and saying, okay, I know if I do these kind of things... I'm going to stay healthy, I'm going to progress in my training, and not just say, well, let's just see what this is, or, oh, I remember doing this workout, and wow, I remember really being beaten up after that, and uh, stuff like that. So That's helpful, that's really good. Um, you heard it, educate yourself. Yeah. Don't be just randomizing things. Sorry. No. <laughs> randomizing. <laughs> but that's okay, too, sometimes, if you're within your framework. Before we finish, I have two questions. Mm-hmm. Very important for Chill Track Friday and Chill yeah. Track Friday listeners. And I know the answer to this, but they do not. Do you drink caffeine? I do not. That's <laughs> why <laughs> so I'm never going to be a New Yorker. So my second question is, do you... Would, I mean, I always have coffee before a race. Do you have anything before a race? As Water like a, and a yogurt parfait. Yeah, yeah. Yogurt parfait. Mm-hmm. That doesn't upset your stomach. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. Mm-hmm. A little inside. How lens. did you get through your MA in English without caffeine? <laughs> and you had like creative writing and bachelor's. I'm in very creative. stubborn. You're very stubborn. <laughs> caffeine needs Mitchell. Mitchell doesn't need caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. On uh, that note. <laughs> on that note. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like I'm caffeinated just talking to Mitchell. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. See you next Friday. Peace. Peace.